I feel like writers, especially, who are wordsmiths, who can name tricky things in clear ways, that should be where we put our efforts, really creating an offense in this campaign to win the hearts back. Storytelling is everything to Meg Medina. It's her career, it's how she holds on to and passes down her heritage, and it's how she believes we can win the fight against book bans. Medina is a Newbery Award winner known best for her Mercy Suarez trilogy, but also for works like Yaki Delgado Wants to Kick Your Ass and Evelyn Del Rey is Moving Away. Meg's writing spans from picture books to young adult fiction. She has something for every reader. Yet, believe it or not, writing as a career was something she came to later in life. She'll tell us about how she finally gave in to her passion and the impact Meg believes repressing that creativity can have. She'll also talk about why she believes in writers giving a look behind the curtains and airing their struggles. It's important to hear what writers have to say about the process, about the struggles in it, the doubts, the missteps, the failures. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Meg also shared her own reading challenge that has a unique theme and a wonderful set of suggested books. You can hear more about that at the end of our conversation. Today, we welcome Meg Medina. So Meg, you are a very successful author and you've won all the awards, including the big one and (laughs) the Newbery and (laughs) have written so many different types of books and different for different grade levels and, you know, all around. But I think what's really interesting is that you didn't become an author full-time until much later in your career. So maybe we could start by you just telling us a little bit about your path to becoming an author because it was not a direct one. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. I was one of those people who came into their own pretty much later. I always did like storytelling and reading, writing, all of that stuff. But it felt like a very far away dream. And it really felt like something ridiculous to say within an immigrant family, right? Where there are a lot of money issues and there's a lot of practical things like you need health insurance, that kind of thing. It seemed almost impossible to say, oh, I'm going to be a writer. It was like saying, you know, I'm going to go to Mars. And also there was just no one in my family who was a writer. There was no one to ask. There was just no background at all. I knew I was going to be going out into strange territory or new territory. You know, my family would have really preferred the things that I did try teaching. I did lots of different things. I wrote PR press releases. I did teaching and then I did on the side like freelance for newspapers and so on. But, you know, I think when you're made for something, you have to do it or you don't feel well. And that's what ended up happening over time. You know, as I got older, as I started having children, like I had all these wonderful things in my life. Wonderful, wonderful things, wonderful children, a husband I really liked. I I had a stable life, which was very different than when I was little. And 
something just was missing. So I think the year that I turned 40, I was at a school, not teaching at that time. I was their development person. I was raising a lot of money for a gym. It was my oldest daughter's school. It was a school for kids with intellectual disabilities and learning disabilities. And so it was very purposeful work. It was very beautiful work, but it was not the work that I was meant to do. So I quit one day. I just got up and I said, I'm going to go write a novel. And so I feel very lucky that when I came home and I said to my husband, I quit my job and I'm going to write this novel. You know, we had three little kids. All of our income was going to fall to him. Right. And that's very hard to do. He internally freaked out, I think, but he didn't externally freak out. He said, I think you could do it, which has been such a gift. And I say that to everybody who has creative people in their life. If you can find it in yourself, not to warn them about how they will starve, but instead give them a window and give them an opportunity. Say, I think you can do it. You can try. I think that's really helpful. So it seems like storytelling was always something that meant a lot to you. But despite not reaching the decision to follow that passion until later in life, it was still tugging at you through everything else that you did. You had a really understanding family, which is great. But for others, they're often parents or family members who may struggle, you know, to encourage a path of creativity. What impacts do you think that not cultivating that creativity could have on young people? So listen, I I really understand parents who feel so strongly, right, pointing their kids toward careers that make it possible for them to sustain themselves, feed themselves, have a standard of living, all of those things. Because, you know, my mother came to this country, had no money, right? And it's not fun or romantic to struggle. It's just, it isn't. And so we want good things for our kids. I understand that. Here's what I will say about creativity. Three things. First, just sort of in a very basic human way. We need our own story. We need the story of our family. We need the story of who we are. We need to be able to hear the story of others, to sort of knit together a sense of of being human, right? And where our place is. So I think just intergenerationally sharing those stories and encouraging that and giving that value not thinking of it as an extra or, oh, I don't know about that or I don't remember, like finding out and sharing those things. That's important. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say is that the person in business and in life who generally wins is the one who can articulate and say what they need to say clearly, whether it's written or orally, right? And so when we practice storytelling and writing and reading, We are helping kids know how to do that in many different styles. And so I think this is really applicable. And it's going to be applicable even if your kid goes into some, I don't know, accounting, finance, whatever. They need to be able to take hard things and break them down and talk about them in an easy and engaging way. We've all been trapped in situations where the person has a lot of knowledge and zero ability. Oh, it's painful. I'd rather have all my teeth removed. It's just, you're just like, oh man, I can't do it. And so I think you're giving your kid a leg up on that skill. And I just think further that promoting reading and writing and like the development of like an engagement with language and with words and with how we say things promotes an engagement 
across people, right? Because we have different words, we have different ways that we communicate and so on. I think that's fantastic, whether it's bilingually or just in dialect or in ways that we speak. I just think connecting kids to language, to vocabulary, to words, to the joy of it, it gives them tools. It makes them interesting. It gives them a way to connect. So that's what I would say. Meg grew up as a first-generation American as her family relocated to the country from Cuba just before she was born. Her Cuban heritage and those early experiences of immigration often play large themes in her stories, but her ability to chronicle and pass these stories down has been important to her in more personal ways as well. Part of the issue, right, is when you come to the United States, just invariably, over time with each generation, you get more separated from the country of origin, right? Whereas, you know, I look at my own children and they have work passable Spanish, but not, I mean, I have fair Spanish. I don't think that I could write these three books, for example, in using my own Spanish. I have a translator, but I, you know, interact with Spanish media. I can read, I can write, I can, but not at the same level. My kids are one step removed. Their kids will be one step removed from that. But I think that if you ask my children what they are, they identify very strongly with being Cuban-American children. And so part of it is when you're in the U.S., there's a a temptation, just a a tradition really, of like thinking of our country as, as exceptional and wonderful and all those things. And that may be true, but not because there aren't valuable, incredible things that happen in other countries, right? And so it is very important and was always was to me, you know, to talk about, you know, Cuban history, the the leaders and the the shining people from our own background, the literature from our, our own background. It was important for me to share stories of how my parents got here, what their trajectory was, you know, what life was, you know, for a factory worker when you first arrived here, like, all of the things, the hardships and the positives, to sort of knit for them a sense of where they came from. That feels important to me. And, you know, my at this point, the elders in my family are gone. My mother and my tia Isa um, died within the last few years. And I have a suitcase filled with their passports from Cuba, their teaching degrees from Cuba, rings and pins and things like that. And those are family heirlooms that I keep, that I will share, you know, among the family members. Giving kids a sense of what happened before, their own sense of history, is important and empowering. Dear Cass, your note was very encouraging and you were good to write it. After I get through with a book, it always seems terrible. And for a while, anyway, that's how it is. I'm glad that I rewrote Charlotte's Web, even though it took me an unconscionable time to do it, as it gained something in the process, I think. Whether children will find anything amusing in it, only time will tell. No doubt, they'd probably like it better if my barn cellar were loaded into a spaceship and exploded in the general direction of Mars. Yours, Andrew. 
What you just heard was a letter from E.B. White, which can be found in the book Letters of E.B. White, published in 1976. White is a legend in children's literature, revered for classics like Stuart Little, The Trumpet of the Swan, and of course, Charlotte's Web. That's why hearing about his own doubts and struggles was so impactful for Meg Medina. Charlotte's Web is my favorite children's book of all time. And I say that because it was the first book that I can remember eliciting a really strong emotional response from me. I was reading it in reading time. We always had reading time after lunch and recess. We'd come in and we had to read for half an hour, probably just to like get our energy back down for the afternoon. But it was a treasured time. And I had gotten to the part where Charlotte leaves the egg sacks for Wilbur. And it was such a touching moment because you suddenly realize that she will pass. Her life has come to an end and she's trusting her good friend. So it was this beautiful thing. And I remember crying and being embarrassed that I was in a classroom crying. But prior to that, all the books that I'd read were like reading to learn to read. And this was that first step into reading to learn how to be human or to reflect on being human. Many years later, I'm in a used bookstore in New York, and I find this fabulous book. It's called The Letters of E.B. White. And I just said, oh, how fabulous. And in this book, he's writing about his struggle to write Charlotte's Web. And I like this quote because I often struggle when I wrote the Mercy books. When I write any book, I'm struggling at some point. At some point in every book, I decide I am the wrong person to write the book, that I can't write the book, that I'm a hack, and that this book is my career-ending book, right? It happens virtually with every book that I've written because it's hard. It's hard to do. That sense of doubt, you know, kids like spaceships. They like modern things. Why are they going to read my book about a barn and a spider and a pig? I do the same thing. Why is somebody going to write about a girl and her read a story about her a Cuban girl in, in Florida with her grandfather or, you know, about a, a girl in New York? Like there's all these doubts. And I love his belief in revision. It's important to hear what writers have to say about the process, about the struggles in it the doubts, the missteps, the failures. Among writers, we almost don't want to share those things because it's a very curated look at who we are, right? But we're not all sitting here with success after success after success. There are plenty of times when we have those dark moments where we're sure we can't do it or, you know, things have happened in our career with our book or whatever that are not good and we're sad. So, That reality is important to share with students as they struggle with their own writing within the publishing world of the classroom or the school. If I could go back to teaching and do it again, what I wish I would do differently is this. So I used to assign multiple different writing projects right throughout a semester, let's say, or a nine-week period. And, you know, they'd be graded and we'd discuss it in group and all of those things. But it's just too much. I wish that I had done fewer assignments and parsed them out. So like today we're going to talk about how we do certain kind of punctuation and dialogue, right? Or all the different possibilities for dialogue. 
and we're working on this story. Same story a week later, we're going to talk about tension and how we build tension and gives kids a sense of how long you work on something. When you were talking about Charlotte's Web, you said something really interesting about uh, reading to be human. And I really love that. Were there other breakthrough reading moments in your youth? Like were your local libraries ever those quintessential magic and wonder places for you? I can't say that it was a, an especially rich experience. I, I mean, I had, for sure, I had a library card. I visited the Queensboro Public Library all the time. I mean, it was a godsend because certainly we couldn't afford to buy books. So, And we had the old model in elementary school where we would visit the library twice a week, you know, that kind of thing. Or sometimes they would bring the, that little squeaky cart and we would, we would select you know, as I got older, what ended up happening, I was, I ended up being a very good reader, right? I read lots of things, you know, I read all the things of girls of, of that age, Judy Bloom, The Witch of Blackbird Pond, My Sight of the Mount, all of it. Then when I started to get older and a teenager and my life started to get much significantly more complicated, I sort of receded into books as an escape as a way to sort of deal with loneliness, I think also a way to just sort of escape hard things, you know, going on. I was living with my dad and all kinds of stuff. So I think I read every Agatha Christie book that was in their basement. I, I read a lot. So I think reading has different functions for us at different times. Sometimes we read to to learn, to satisfy our curiosity. Sometimes we read to heal ourselves. Sometimes we read to escape and not have to think too hard about what's going on. And all of those reasons are okay. It's like how we eat, right? We eat all kinds of stuff, all kinds of reasons. Also for some of the same reasons. Yeah, right. And they sustain us. It all sustains us. And so I think it's okay not to judge how people read or what they're reading, you know? I learned that lesson the most with my oldest daughter, who's intellectually disabled. She used to watch a lot of television when she was a young teen, but was only reading like the Henry and Mudge books, very early readers, right? But she was, you know, 13. It felt sad to me because I, I love books and story and this was going to be this thing that we couldn't connect on. But she watched, oh my gosh, Hannah Montana and all these old shows, right? And so we'd go to what was then Borders Bookstore here in Richmond, and she'd want to buy these books. And it was like I was buying like pornography or something. I'd buy these like Disney books and like slide them over and try to pay quickly without anybody noticing. <laughs> and it, it was how silly is that? Because you know what happened? My daughter could predict the story and the words because she watched so much of the television shows and she started to build her sight vocabulary and so on. She ended up being a teenager who liked People Magazine. Do I read People Magazine? No, but my daughter read People Magazine. And today my daughter is a reader. She is 30. She reads about like middle grade, early young adult level, but that's huge right? That's a lot of stuff that she can read and a lot of stuff. Especially nowadays. Yeah. And so I feel excited for her and I, I wish I hadn't had all those judgment things. So when I see parents like judging, let's say graphic novels or judging, you know, all kinds of formats, I want to encourage them to take a deep breath and 
trust that their kids are going to read what they want to read, what's feeding a need that they have, and they will have other chances to read other things as well. I mean, never stop introducing them to other things, but let them choose. There's something very powerful in student choice, in letting kids tell you what's interesting to them, what they find funny, what they find scary, what they find interesting. In your school visits and seeing other some of the libraries and schools that you've visited, um, have you ever seen like either the way they welcomed you or just in general, like a space or a place that really has stayed with you, like the way that they approached reading in the school? It would be impossible for me to pick one because typically when I'm invited, right, it's already a big deal for the school, right? So they, my big face is on the, in their <laughs> library window, like that kind of thing. So you have to, you get a student ambassador who takes you around all kinds of stuff. I have loved the schools in so many places. I'm thinking Wisconsin. I'm thinking Fayetteville. I'm thinking North Carolina, all over this country where the students, sometimes it's a class or a student group that's read. And so they are constructing the event. They construct the questions, the event. Sometimes they, instead of me on stage with a PowerPoint about what I think is important. I'm on stage with them in conversation and they're asking me the question that they want answered based on the book. And then I can cover all the things that I was gonna cover in a PowerPoint book, but it's tailored to what they really wanna know. Something you'll hear our guests reference often in this podcast is the movement in the U.S. by some to ban or challenge books. Nearly everyone in the book industry can agree that this is one of, if not the most, pressing issues we face. This fear and frustration is something that Meg has felt too. It's also something she's been very vocal about. In October 2021, Meg wrote a detailed piece on her blog about the matter. In that post, she wrote, to pull books from a school library because of the discomfort they create in adults is a recipe for disaster. It erodes the trust young people have in the adults in their lives and pushes them to secrecy. It undermines the studied opinion of professional librarians and educators. It supports a false idea that there is one version of life that is acceptable and it denigrates the work of authors who are brave enough to name experiences that are difficult and real. Part of what's driving the recent spike in book bans is, ironically, some very shrewd storytelling by the anti-book activists. They're successfully selling a narrative that is igniting fear and passion. And to paraphrase what Meg said earlier, in life, the person who wins is the one who's best at articulating their story. A narrative is being sold that is driving the passion of those calling for bans, and it's a dangerous one. But storytelling is something that authors know best. And when it comes to taking action to fight back, that's something Meg believes that we should lean into. We've always had book challenges and book bans and so on. This has always been an impulse. You know, I'm going, I want to protect children. I want to protect the values that I think are important and therefore I don't want my child exposed to that. That has always been. What's very different now, I think, is that it has been codified. It's been made into, a, frankly, a political strategy 
to get people elected and to sort of stir up fear that lends itself to getting people elected, right? That's just true about how it's going. It's a very organized and well-funded movement. So if you go to ALA's, the American Library Association's page on on censorship and so on, you could see like this enormous spike in the number of books and so on that are being challenged and the movement in that way. And I think it's really because of this sort of organized way. What I think needs to happen, frankly, is that typically we have responded like in whack-a-mole fashion, like this book is challenged here, I'm going to respond there. Book is challenged here, I'm going to respond there. I think we need to go on the offensive. We have a defense, but no offense. And I'm a terrible sports Look person, you. so sports I will have analogies. no good analogy. <laughs> I know. Must be that ball is in the air, football's in the air. But we need we need an offense, right? And the offense is that ideas, ideas matter. Opening kids up to thinking. I feel like writers especially who are wordsmiths, who can name things, tricky things in clear ways, that should be where we put our efforts, really creating an offense in this campaign to win the hearts back. Because what's being sold is that your parental power is being taken from you through these shady books. That's what's being sold. And that is not the case. The books being written are about the experiences that actually exist for children right now right? In communities as they look and function right now. And I think we're in many ways in a golden age of children's literature and teen literature. So much incredible work is coming out. I feel like that's what where I'd like to see us go. You're all writers and storytellers and you're telling these amazing stories, but the, the narrative in this case is like controlled and maybe because the story is very simple, the narrative that you're, you know, that other narrative is a very just one dimensional. It's very unfortunate because, as I said, it's just being um, wordsmithed and filed into this really poisonous dart, right? Um, so, for example, I have a book called Yaki Vinga, The Wants to Kick Your Ass, which used to get. I'm reading that right now. Okay. Well, yeah, your seventh grader will enjoy it. It's about to come out as a graphic novel next year, I should tell you also, which is exciting. So I used to get a lot of pushback for the word ass in the title. And I've spoken about why that title made sense and so on. Today, it gets pushback for its cultural content. The fact that her mom, you know, has ideas about working and as she does and like, and Burn Baby Burn is another one where it's on some list for, for what they call critical race theory, which is it's a bananas to me. Absolutely bananas. But those are really powerful push points, right? And so you put that button on it and you can get, you guarantee to get people worked up. And that's what's happening. And that's the strategy, right? Shake people up, make them afraid, make them feel that something is being stolen from them, their power, their ideas, etc. And so I, I just think we can't combat that as whack-a-mole. I think we have to come together thoughtfully and cohesively with an offense.
Mercy Suarez Changes Gears is the book that earned Meg Medina her Newbery Award. It's a coming-of-age story featuring Cuban-American sixth grader Mercy Suarez as she faces new challenges and struggles in her life. The character that Medina created was an instant hit with readers. Pressed with many of the expected setbacks of life at that transformative age, Mercy's resilience and perseverance shine in a truly heartwarming story. But one book wasn't enough for such a strong and relatable character. Three years after its 2018 release, Meg Medina published her second Mercy story titled Mercy Suarez Can't Dance. And on September 12th, the third and final book of this trilogy telling the tales of this infinitely lovable young girl made it to shelves. That book is called Mercy Suarez Plays It Cool. As Meg says goodbye to her most famous character, I was interested to hear how this journey with Mercy feels coming to a close and how writing a trilogy differs from a single story. The Mercy trilogy, right, so the first book, of course, Mercy Suarez Changes Gears, won the the Newbery, and then the second book, which is also dear to my heart, Mercy Suarez Can't Dance, came out during COVID. Right. So it was a COVID casualty book. Right. So it, it just struggled in there. And I'm hoping that with the publishing the third book, that people will read the trilogy to just sort of see the whole arc. So, you know, the arc of middle school is really something. Just think of yourself in the fifth grade and then who you were in the eighth grade. Right. Physically, mentally, socially, like it is a metamorphosis. It is huge and, and not often smooth. And so it was a real unpacking of what that experience is through Medici's eyes. So part of the issue when you write a trilogy without thinking that you were writing a trilogy is that you do not keep track of all things. So boy, did that take a lot of things like oh, wait, what was her teacher's name in the sixth grade? If I'm going to mention her, I better, you know, so I had to just make sure I had my story straight. And the other trick about the novel, of course, is in in the eighth grade. So now she's, you know, 13 going on 14. She's facing, you know, she's about to go on the school overnight trip. She's uh, now very comfortable in her friendships, even in her frenemy relationship with Edna. And this chance for a new set of friends sort of emerges. So it's looking at like at that moment when we see ourselves as potentially part of multiple groups and where they intersect and where they don't. And then of course the, the notion of what's going on in her family with Inez, you know, Tia Inez and the twins, the twins father reappears in this novel, dun, 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 right? Like what do we do with him? And so as I was writing all those things, I knew I had to bring this in for a safe landing for the reader and write about an eighth grade girl for readers who are middle grade readers, right? Ages nine to 12. And so the character has aged, but the reader hasn't necessarily, right? And so- Especially the trilogy. Yeah. It's like one, two, three, you know, that's, they want, what's the, where's the next one, you know? Whenever they read it, they're reading the other two. So I felt like I had, I learned a lot writing as an author. I learned a lot writing the Merci Suarez trilogy. There were scenes in the book that I didn't want to write and, you know, that I, but I, I needed to because I knew that that was going to be part of the book. And 
when I finished it, I just, I, now I know that I'm done with medicine. Like I brought her to this next place of her growth and I love her and I love her family and they feel so real to me. I mean, it sounds strange, but I feel proud that I gave them life, you know, that I put these characters in kids for in the world of, of readers. I, I love how they operate with all of their bumps and boils and missteps and all of it. And so I'm good now. Like if I had to have stopped after Medicine Sweaters changes gears, I would have felt incomplete. I would have had that itch. But with the short story and the three books, I feel like I told the story I really wanted to tell about this girl in middle school. That again was Meg Medina, Newbery Award medalist and New York Times bestselling author. Everyone that we speak to on this podcast will also provide us with their own unique reading challenge for all listeners and also available to our partners on Beanstack. Meg's challenge is called Girls in Motion. She curated a diverse list of stories that feature athletic girls facing various challenges in their lives. I'll let her explain a bit more. The first thing I'm going to say, confessional, I am not, I was not a sporty girl. As, you as did a, make a sports analogy I, in this I, podcast. So get on the offense. And it was pretty good. <laughs> you were not sporty. Okay. You were not sporty. I was not sporty, but I was action Jackson. I was, uh, I was always in motion. I was always moving. I had trouble staying still. I love watching athletic girls, just like the power on the field. I, I love all of it. And so I, in picking these books, I picked books where the character is on some team. Sometimes it's soccer, sometimes it's softball, sometimes they're roller derby queens, sometimes, you know, it, all kinds of things, basketball. But the story is more than the game. Sports are a wonderful way to learn how to work as a team, how to work collaboratively, how to fail, how to win gracefully, how to work hard. It also teaches us some lousy lessons sometimes too, right? So I don't know. I liked the companionship. I liked Furia, for example, in my YA title that I picked because it takes you to another country and how sports women are viewed there, right? I tried to pick authors from diverse backgrounds so that you could have the same topic from all kinds of lenses. All of our listeners can join Meg's reading challenge, Girls in Motion, by visiting thereadingculturepod.com. There you'll find the full list of Meg's recommended books and more details about the challenge. We've also made Girls in Motion available on Beanstack for our customers. Before we check out from this episode, I also wanted to introduce a very special segment where we give some well-deserved attention to some of the rock star librarians in our own Beanstack community. Today's featured librarian is Meredith Derrick, the library coordinator for Klein Independent School District outside of Houston, Texas. She told us about her most successful library program to date. My most successful library program ever would have to be the reading fair. So you remember in elementary school, you would have a science fair. Well, I did a spin on it and we had a reading fair. So students took what they learned in the classroom and during their library lessons and they created a trifold board and it would include all the story elements and they could decorate it how they wanted to. And we made a family night of it and it was a huge success. I do it every year. 
This has been The Reading Culture. And thanks again to today's guest, Meg Medina. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie. And currently I'm reading Pieces of Me by Renee Watson and The Guest List by Lucy Foley. If you've enjoyed today's show, please show some love and rate, subscribe, and share the reading culture among your friends and networks. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of the show, where we'll be in conversation with Karina Yan Glazer. Thanks again for joining and keep reading. Keep reading.